Terrorism, law, and democracy. Terrorism and the rule of law. The international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11, 2001. Part 6. The security state. If the civil police adopt a national security mandate in their exercise of the existing and expanded powers, what will happen? Due to potential advantages and benefits exceed the potential for harm, the, ter the terrorist threat is real, but is this the answer? What happens when the national security mindset, which looks at external threats, is turned on the domestic arena? Will there be a greater level of targeting of the so-called outsiders within our midst? Policing academics already point to the police subculture that profiles non-mainstream groups as deviant and a threat. What happens now with the added impetus of a terrorist threat? Finally, on the issue of accountability. How have the new powers been balanced by an equivalent increase in civilian oversight? Or is the opposite true? Have there been, has there been an erosion of civilian oversight? Long-term memory radio. Welcome to Terrorism, Law and Democracy, a documentary series examining the consequences of September 11th on Canada's legal and security system. My name is Khalid Emsafar. This is Part 6, The Security State. In this episode, we consider the changes wrought to Canada's national security and law enforcement agencies by the new legislation introduced by the federal government in response to the events of September 11, 2001. These enormous changes to Canada's criminal code in the form of Bill C-36, the Anti-Terrorism Act, and Canada's evolving anti-terrorism strategy, including the old Bill C-55, or the Public Securities Act, as well as the new Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, have an important international, political, and legal context. The United Nations Security Council Resolution 1373 created compulsory guidelines for developing national legislation in the international war on terrorism. In Part 6, we will consider both Canada's security state and the role of the United Nations in combating terrorism. Our first speaker, Professor Reg Whitaker from Victoria, British Columbia, describes three lead agencies in Canada's war on terrorism. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, and the Communication Security Establishment, or the CSE. Commissioner Gwen Boniface and lawyer Paul Copeland participated in the panel discussion, Does Bill C-36 Give Police Too Many Powers? On March 26, 2002, during the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice's conference, Terrorism, Law and Democracy. Our last speaker is Joanne Weschler, UN Observer for Human Rights Watch. She describes Resolution 1373 and the UN's role in dealing with terrorism. 
Whitaker is professor of political science at the University of Victoria and has written extensively on Canada's national security and history, immigration and democracy. In part two, Canada's national security history, he related a history of Canada's Cold War experiences. I interviewed him about Canada's security and police operations and asked him to describe Canada's security and law enforcement structure. Okay, first, first of all, I think you have to make a, a basic distinction between two different kinds of agencies that are, in fact, dealing with sort of different cuts uh, into the same uh, problem. Uh, on the one hand, you have uh, security intelligence, uh, which is essentially providing the government of Canada with uh, security threat assessments uh, that relate to uh, various potential uh, threats to Canadian security. And uh, on the other, you have uh, law enforcement, that is, uh, the actual enforcement of laws that are designed to uh, to deal with uh, uh, such matters as, as terrorism and uh, and other kinds of uh, <clears throat> of uh, threats to uh, to public safety. Uh, so that is the uh, sort of primary uh, distinction which uh, until 1984, in fact, was not really made in this country because we had it up until 1984. We had uh, one agency, uh, the RCMP, uh, which is a national, uh, the National Police Force, uh, which had within it uh, the security service, which uh, actually did sort of double duty both as uh, Providing those uh, threat assessments, intelligence for the for the government, and enforcing the laws. Now uh, that turned out to be a problem, and uh, that was in fact a, a series of scandals that uh, erupted uh, into public consciousness during the 1970s. And uh, a royal commission, the Macdonald Commission. Uh, recommended ultimately in 1981 that uh, the uh, security service be taken out of the RCMP and uh, a new civilian agency be uh, created. And in 1984, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, was uh, created, uh, which continues to this day to have responsibility for uh, security intelligence uh, with regard to uh, threats to the security of Canada. Now the um, uh, the uh, RCMP uh, continues to, in fact, uh, play a law enforcement role, and uh, that is, uh, if there is uh, a threat to security of Canada, which is, in fact, uh, in which there is reasonable and probable grounds to believe that a criminal offense has taken place or is likely to take place. Uh, then uh, it is in fact the RCMP that is responsible for uh, for dealing with that. So if it's uh, dealing with an overt terrorist act, uh, for example, uh, that uh, has taken place or is uh, believed to be uh, in the process of being uh, committed uh, or a conspiracy exists to uh, to carry out such an act uh, in Canada, contrary to Canadian law, then it would be, in fact, the RCMP that would be charged with the responsibility. But clearly, uh, CSIS continues to 
to play a role even at that point because, in fact, they're involved in long-term intelligence assessments. Uh, and uh, ideally, the two agencies will, in fact, cooperate uh, together. Uh, this has not always happened, and, in fact, there has been some uh, serious problems uh, of... Uh, cooperation in the past, uh, most notably over the Air India uh, disaster in uh, the late 1980s when uh, the Air India plane carrying mostly Canadian citizens was shot down, uh, or bombed, or I should say, uh, and uh, with the loss of all uh, lives, and uh, which has still not resulted, in fact, in a criminal uh, conviction. And uh, there's a trial that is, in fact, proceeding now, many, many years later, uh, in uh, in Vancouver. But uh, there were problems between the RCMP and and uh, and CSIS uh, with regard to uh, to the investigation of uh, of that uh, of that terrorist act. Uh, now, however, having said that, we have uh, those two uh, the two two main lead agencies really involved here. But that doesn't quite um, uh, complete the picture uh, in Canada. Uh, there is one other uh, important agency which exists uh, in the uh, in the federal government structure, the Communications Security Establishment, uh, the CSE, which is actually technically under the uh, Defense uh, Department. Uh, which is in fact engaged in uh, foreign intelligence uh, gathering, uh, and uh, is is mainly uh, focused on uh, electronic or uh, communications interception. So it's sort of technical intelligence gathering, intercepting uh, communications, uh, electronic eavesdropping, and uh, the CSE does in fact operate on a global scale, and. Um, uh, and uh, and it's it, the information which it gathers may very well be pertinent, uh, and certainly since September the 11th would be directed by the government of Canada to be uh, particularly focused on potential threats to the security of Canada coming from terrorism. Uh, after those three agencies were really then looking in a somewhat more marginal way at other uh, police forces, uh, provincial uh, police forces, uh, although with the exception of Ontario and, and Quebec, uh, provincial policing is, is handled by the RCMP and all the other provinces in, in the country. But uh, in Ontario, it certainly tried since September the 11th to uh, insert itself into this equation uh, by uh, insisting upon uh, playing a role uh, via its Ontario Provincial Police Force. But uh, that remains, I think, fairly uh, fairly marginal to the overall picture. And then, of course, there are, in fact, uh, urban uh, uh, police forces, particularly in the large uh, cities, who again will certainly be involved in in close liaison and cooperation when it comes to specific cases, uh, but who would not, I think, play a particularly uh, leading role uh, simply because they don't have the resources or the uh, the capacity to, uh, and they don't have uh, the relationship with uh, with uh, important relationship that CSIS and the RCMP.
and the CSE have with uh, with allied uh, intelligence agencies, particularly the American and the uh, and the British. You've been listening to Professor Whitaker describing the lead agencies in Canada's war on terrorism and Canada's national security structure. This has been part six, The Security State, from the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy. I was Khalid M. Safar. Join us next time for part seven. This has been a long-term memory radio production on CKUT 90.3 FM. Gwen Boniface is the first female president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. She argues that from a law enforcement perspective, Bill C-36 provides the necessary resources for preventing terrorism in Canada while respecting civil liberties. Canadian law enforcement has a fundamental responsibility to protect the safety and security of the people of Canada, and it's clearly what Canadians want. They want measures to protect their safety and security, especially as it relates to the threat of terrorism violence here in Canada, and they support the laws that mitigate the threat of terrorism. Canadians also want, and indeed have every right to expect, that their rights and freedoms, the rights and freedoms of all citizens, will be fully respected. And they want to be assured that appropriate safeguards exist to protect those rights. In my view, the provisions of C-36 can meet the need for both of those. The provisions of C-36 are necessary to address terrorism and prevent terrorism crime in Canada, and the legislation balances protection of security with those individual rights. It is legislation that provides essential and appropriate tools to law enforcement in Canada to address terrorism for Canadians. The legislation applies to a new environment, the stark reality revealed on September 11th. Such terrorism, the threat of violence, did not start and finish on that day and it won't disappear solely in the future. It is real and it is ongoing. Canadians rely on the police and the courts to protect our society and police services across Canada exist to keep our communities safe and ensure that our Canadian way of life can be maintained. In doing so, the police role is to uphold the law and to treat the citizens of Canada fairly in all that we do as police services. Bill C-36 provides a balanced legislative structure for police services and intelligence agencies to work together to effectively counter terrorism on Canadian soil. It also facilitates law enforcement participation in a very necessary global response to terrorism. 
Bill C-36 provides strengthening of the legal infrastructure, as Rick spoke about yesterday, through a strong leg legislative framework and enforcement capacity. The legislation strengthens our ability to deter terrorism through provisions aimed at preventing, disabling, and dismantling the activities of groups and those who support them. Prior to this legislation, laws were ineffective to deal with these individuals who belong to terrorist groups or willingly participate in finance or support terrorist acts. Further, the legislation supports our efforts to work in concert with other countries in a global effort against terrorism and brings Canada in line with international conventions on the suppression of terrorist financing and the suppression of terrorist bombings. Canada, as was indicated yesterday, has now implemented all 12 UN conventions and protocols relating to terrorism. We must be able to work towards prevention of terrorist acts, and C-36 provides measures to assist us with that objective. Measures that define and designate terrorist groups and activities. Measures that make it an offense to knowingly participate in, contribute, or facilitate the activities. Measures that cut off financial support for terrorists for making it a crime to knowingly collect or give funds in order to carry out terrorism. Measures that require individuals who have information related to it to appear before a judge to provide that information. In our view, the legislation does not provide unrestrained or highly intrusive powers of investigation. It does not provide for powers of extended detention without trial. Any powers of preventative arrest are strictly limited in time frame and any charges require the consent of the Attorney General and in turn the scrutiny of the courts. This legislation does not provide for reverse burden of proof. Proof of intent is required to prove offenses. The Government of Canada has included safeguards in the legislation to ensure consistency in the legal framework, including the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Checks and balances are in place to ensure that the provisions of this legislation meet the needs and protections of both our security interests and our individual rights. The legislation has clearly defined scope. Legitimate political activism and protests are excluded through the precise definition of terrorist activities. This was specifically addressed in the amendments to the legislation. In addition to comprehensive new terrorism offenses under the criminal code, this legislation provides for limited and strictly safeguarded preventive arrest to make it possible for law enforcement to disrupt the planning and carrying out of terrorist attacks. As Anne McClellan said in her often quoted comments, it's too late when the terrorists have already boarded the plane. Any such threat must be specific and involve a specific individual and the Attorney General must consent to the arrest. Detention after arrest must receive judicial review within 24 hours. This legislation also provided for judicially supervised investigative hearings under limited conditions to assist the investigation of terrorist offense. As you know, a judge may order the examination of a material witness, but first must be satisfied that the consent of the Attorney General was obtained and there are reasonable grounds to believe the offense has been or will be committed. These provisions are recognized as necessary powers for extraordinary intervention, intervention that we hope will be rarely required or applied. In fact, we expect that it will be used only as a last resort. Should they be, however, law enforcement must establish that requirement before a number of different authorities. In January of this year, police, or police chiefs from across the province gathered for a workshop on Bill C-36. It was important to us to ensure at a leadership level that the implications of Bill C-36 were well understood 
and we will follow up with regional presentation across the country in the months ahead. It was clear to us that there were diverse views and we will be we expect considerable scrutiny of the exercise of any of police powers. Mr. Borovoy, who is in the room I think today but was uh, presented at our conference, <coughs> cautioned us that police should use these powers sparingly and respect due process of law. In essence, if I have quoted him correctly, and I believe I have, he said the police should use as much effort in enforcing the legislation as they do in protecting individual rights. We at the leadership level bear responsibility to ensure that both sides of that equation are met. As Mr. Mosey said yesterday, training packages have been developed and distributed, including concurrent lectures delivered by the Department of Justice. Training at this level should be restricted to those highly specialized units which will take on the task of these investigations. To a much lesser degree, frontline officers will require general awareness of the legislation and its implications, but not in-depth training as they will not be employing the measures contained in Bill C-36. Further, Canadian police agencies will have to prepare internal policy and establish procedures to set out clear rules and guidelines. The guidelines will include procedural requirements, for example, when the Attorney General's consent is required. Police agencies will have to determine what information how is conveyed, what levels of the organization communicate this information, and what the requirements will be from a reporting perspective for government. These are some of the types of internal policies and procedures that will have to be implemented and we agree that this should be a coordinated effort across the country. The workshop also emphasizes the need to work within communities to understand the fears felt and to understand the sensitivity that is required. It is important to develop proper lines of communication to, main respe to re maintain respect for communities and for the role we play as police and to dispel any notion of targeting. Operationally, police agencies must work hard and we understand we will have to work hard hand in hand with communities. Let me emphasize again, emphasize again that the law enforcement officers working on these types of cases would not be our normal frontline patrol officers. They will be highly specialized, highly trained police investigators working collaboratively with a number of agencies. Canadian Police Services strongly support the measures provided in C-36. They also support for the protection of rights equally strongly. The terrorist's greatest ally is complacency, and terrorists exploit the very freedoms and protection afforded by our society to carry out their acts. Canadian law enforcement is part of our democratic society and intrinsically and wholeheartedly support the protection of ind individuals' freedoms as paramount to that democratic society. In Canada, the policing profession is one among the most highly regulated and scrutinized professions. Indeed, oversight is in place to oversee the actions of police agencies. Police agencies are accountable to local police services board or government departments. Jurisdictions have civilian oversight bodies. In Ontario, for example, the Ontario Civilian Commission on Police Services provides that oversight function and I understand they have already begun their training on Bill C-36. All police agencies have public complaint systems to review any allegations of improper police conduct. Any enforcement action, including enforcement undertaken under provisions of C-36, will be subject to the scrutiny of the courts up to and including the Supreme Court of Canada. 
Moreover, all police actions are subject to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms with respect to the application of this and, of course, all other legislation. The courts and civilian oversight bodies provide essential checks and balances to ensure police integrity. Nonetheless, we appreciate the need to maintain close control over the powers contained in C-36. The legislation itself calls for the Attorney General, the Solicitor General of Canada, Provincial Attorney Generals and Ministers responsible for policing to report annually to Parliament on the use of preventative arrests and investigative hearing provisions. The entire Act is subject to parliamentary review in three years. Provisions in the Act dealing with preventative arrests and investigative hearings will sunset after five years unless both the House of Commons and the Senate pass a resolution. We argued before the Commons Committee that a small central agency should be set up to facilitate the sharing of information other important resources to ensure best practices and ongoing learning. These best practices are important to the professionalism of police response to terrorism. While not an oversight body, it would contribute to the professionalism and integrity of the process. Bill C-36 complements the basic structure of the criminal justice in this country and does not change the basic public expectation of law enforcement action that respects human rights. It maintains the context of close scrutiny of law enforcement action through the application of significant safeguards. Police training will be more extensive than any other new legislation introduced. We know our actions will be under great scrutiny and we intend to meet the expectations of protecting individual rights. You've been listening to OPP Commissioner Gwen Boniface, the first female president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. She argued that from a law enforcement perspective, Bill C-36 provided appropriate protection for civil liberties. Copeland is a lawyer practicing criminal law in immigration and national security matters. He is a director of the Law Society of Upper Canada and argues that the new policing powers in Canada are dangerous and unnecessary. I think having a knowledge of prior national security issues as they have gone on probably at least in North America in the last hundred years or so is important when discussing this issue. I've been practicing law for 35 years, and much of that time I have been involved in issues of national security, sometimes from being subject to their investigations, and, and sometimes from representing people who have um, been subject to their investigations. The events of September the 11th, and I'm not the first person to say this, were a result of a massive failure of intelligence. In the paper, I've listed many of the alphabetized organizations that... Uh, failed in their work in figuring out what was coming from the Al-Qaeda organization. Again, in the material, I outlined some of the prior attacks that the Al-Qaeda people had done, trying to figure out where the failures came from, and that, in my view, has not been examined at all. Um, you have to go to funny sources. One of the sources is Vanity Fair. There was a very good article in January uh, 
article written by David Rose entitled The Secret Bin Laden Files, the Al-Qaeda intelligence the U.S. ignored, and the Sudanese government was offering well before September 11 to give them information on Al-Qaeda. And he documents in a very significant way the American intelligence authorities' refusal to ever meet with the Sudanese people. Canadian government response to Bill C-11, or to September 11th, was Bill C-36 and a couple of other pieces of legislation. In my view, they are a massive assault on civil liberties and include provisions that we've never seen in Canada before, including preventative arrest, investigative hearings, and easier wiretapping. And I think those are all problems for our society as we go down the road and figuring out what to do, and, and we certainly need to do something in relation to the events of September the 11th um, and the possibility of future serious terrorist attacks. But you have to remember all of the illegal things that were done both by the FBI and the RCMP in their attacks against communist subversives um, in the United States, Martin Luther King against the Black Panther Party, whole series of organizations that they targeted um, and targeted in illegal fashion. In the paper, I make reference to some of the things that the McDonald Commission didn't get to look at because the RCMP was careful enough to destroy the files before the uh, McDonald Commission was, rep was created. I expect that you all know that CSIS was created in order to take away the responsibility for national security from a very badly run security service of the RCMP and to try and provide some controls over the activities of the security agencies in this country. Bill C-36 was a very long piece of, of legislation or proposed legislation went on for about 175 pages. And I'd like to read you. Um, I was very concerned about the parliamentary response to the legislation. I'd like to read you a portion of a what I thought was the only decent question asked by a member of parliament when um, both Mr. Edward Elcott of CSIS and Commissioner Zachary Deli of the RCMP were before the, the Commons Committee. Mr. Blakey asked the, the following question. He said, I have a few questions to ask Commissioner Zachary Deli with respect to the sections of this new Bill C-36 that provides for preventative detention or preventative arrest or whatever. Presumably the government, when it was designing this bill, was consulting with the RCMP. I wonder whether you could tell us whether you have a file or some other information with respect to this, to the kind of things that you, have be, that you might have been able to prevent had you had this provision before, rather than only now with this bill. I mean, is there some history for the need for this, or are there particular terrorist acts that would have been prevented in the past had this provision been available to the police? Where does it come from? Commissioner Zachary Deli, I'm not going to speculate, Mr. Chair, about the past and so on, but our position, our support for this bill, obviously is based on what happened on September the 11th. The world changed on September the 11th. We have to take that into consideration. I believe we have, as a Canadian society and the government, taken that into consideration. And he goes on to give what, in my view, is a total non-answer. Now, Parliament passed the legislation, and it is a concern to me. I, I do not disagree with commis the Commissioner of the OPP that we need to be sure that there are no terrorist acts. We need to try and achieve that result. But one of the things also that happened before the Parliamentary Committee was that nobody asked Ward Alcott what CSIS had been doing prior to September the 11th. 
I asked a question of him yesterday about them dealing with transnational crime and cert saying Security Intelligence Review Committee saying in 1999 CSIS is dealing with transnational crime, it's outside their mandate, they don't know what they're doing and they're down to street level drug dealing. I would have thought somebody would want to ask Mr. Elcott what percentage of your time was spent on national or counterterrorism? What things do you need? Would it make any difference if these powers were here? Nobody asked those questions. And what we got was a wish list of additional powers for the police. The preventative arrest provision says that if you're arrested in that fashion, after 72 hours you must be released. And they have what is basically a peace bond provision. And it's similar to the provision that they put in the code in relation to dealing with pedophiles, convicted pedophiles. But one might ask oneself, you arrest somebody presumably on preventative arrest, you're forced to release them within 72 hours, you require them to sign a bond to keep the peace. If somebody's intending to fly a plane into a building, is that going to stop them? Is that provision worth anything? And I suggest it isn't. In relation to investigative hearings, what it does is it removes the right to remain silent in Canada, and that's been important, an important feature of our law for a very long time. Now, I ask you to imagine a, a real member of Al-Qaeda being brought before a judge and being asked questions about who are the members of your cell. What kind of answers do you think you'll get? He might decline to answer the questions, he might swear at them, and he might lie to them. Is this hearing going to be of any value? I doubt it very much. Now, some of the parliamentarians managed to achieve a sunset clause over the very strong resistance of Anne McClellan and the, and the Prime Minister. But even the sunset clause doesn't cause me any um, solace in relation to this. I'd ask you to recall that in Britain they originally removed the right to remain silent in regard to the IRA terrorism matters, and now that is a general part of the British law. The right to remain silent is gone in Britain. And I think that this type of legislation is one that has a pervasive effect on what we end up with in Canada. The legislation provides for easier wiretapping and it goes down the road of what happened with the gang legislation. Many of you will recall, and I expect since I'm in the city where most of it happens, the number of biker killings that have gone on in Montreal and in Quebec generally is there is a struggle between the two organizations for control of whatever criminal activity they engage in, certainly drugs, probably if it's anything like Ontario running all the strippers in the, in the bars. But that war, as of the time they passed the biker legislation, I think they killed about a hundred people. One would have thought that the requirements in the legislation and they, they stem from the passage of the Protection of Privacy Act in, in the mid-70s required that you, before you could wiretap, you had to have tried other investigative techniques and they have to have failed. I can't imagine after 100 people have been killed in Quebec that the police didn't have wiretap authorization to wiretap every biker in the province. And it seems to me if they didn't have that type of authorization from a judge by that point, they sh the police officers should have resigned for incompetence. But instead what they've said is, no, you can wiretap without having to establish prior investigative techniques have been tried and failed. We now have the same provision in regard to this legislation. In my view, it is a danger to our society. Particularly um, significant, it's a chapter called Cutting Down Trees, Lawmaking Under the Shadow of Great Calamities, and it's written by 
Professor Oren Gross, who's an associate professor at Tel Aviv Faculty of Law and a visiting professor at Benjamin Cardoza School of Law. Now, certainly the Israelis of any country or Israel of any country has had to pass legislation to deal with terrorist activities. And he points out the dangers of passing the legislation very close after the time that the calamities have taken place. Going back to the easier wiretaps, I don't know beyond my concern about easier wiretaps generally, why we needed to give those to the police. CSIS has a responsibility for dealing with counterterrorism. They have very broad wiretap powers. They have to go to a federal court judge and lay out a little bit, but a whole lot less than the uh, police do to get wiretaps. Seemed to me it was appropriate to leave that power with CSIS and not pass it on to every police department in the country. Professor Baudour is going to talk about um, signals intelligence. Um, and I think the Canadian security establishment is probably not all that well known in this room. The extent of the surveillance that's done by the National Security Agency in, in the United States, Government Communication Headquarters in Britain, the CSE, and I never remember the names of the Australian or the New Zealand organization, but they monitor every form of electronic communication in the world. Um, and while they're generally not allowed to um, monitor their own citizens, my general impression is that they monitor each other's citizens and the information is flowing back in a circle. Now, one of the things you have to make sure is actually is that the information flows to all the agencies that need the information. And it may well be in the past that CSIS has not been very good in providing information to the RCMP. There has been a jurisdictional or turf war going on between those organizations for a very long time should note as well that other than the brief reporting to Parliament, there is no oversight in the legislation for the exercise of the powers that have been given to the police. CSIS is subject to some very significant oversight powers. The CSE has virtually no oversight powers. It is no legislation really that creates it, at least up until this point. Um, and God knows what they're doing. Now, CSE has been given additional powers. They can now monitor Canadians inside Canada who are talking to people outside Canada. Again, is that necessary? I don't know. I would prefer that we not go down that road until we have examined the intelligence failures that led to um, the events of September the 11th. Other than the financing of terrorist activities, I don't think that the legislation was necessary. Everything that is illegal under this legislation was illegal before. It was illegal to plan mass murder. It was illegal to carry out mass murder. Um, so what we have done is provided some legislation that, in my view, will be a significant problem in the future. Now, you have a three-year parliamentary review of the legislation. And you might say, well, that's reassuring. Um, three years from now, the parliamentarians will look at this and They'll make some changes if changes are necessary. Give, firstly, given their approach to enacting the legislation, I'm not reassured by that. The other thing I should remind you of is that the CSIS legislation had a five-year review. And after CSIS, five years after CSIS had been created, a team was formed headed by a man named Stuart Farson to do the review. They made 117 recommendations in regard to CSIS. Three were adopted. Is that reassuring? certainly doesn't reassure me. Last thing I want to mention, um, many of you will know the name of Ron Atke. Ron Atke was a, the immigration minister in the Joe Clark government. Um, he was the first 
um, head of the Security Intelligence Review Committee when it was formed in 1984. He has a significant knowledge of national security issues from the inside. He was also, in, in my view, the best parliamentarian in the debates in the mid-70s on the creation of the wiretap powers under what I said was the pro misnamed Protection of Privacy Act. Mr. Atkey was interviewed on the CBC, um, on the national news, talking about Bill C-36 before it was passed. And his, he concluded his comments by saying, 10 years from now, your grandchildren will ask you, what did you do to stop this bill when it was introduced? Thank you. That was Paul Copeland, a Toronto-based immigration and national security lawyer based in Toronto. Director of the Law Society of Upper Canada, he argues that the new policing powers in Canada since September 11, 2001, in the War on Terrorism, are dangerous and unnecessary. Joanna Weschler is the United Nations Observer for Human Rights Watch, an international non-governmental organization based in New York. She describes Resolution 1373 and the UN's role in dealing with the war on terrorism. Joanna Weschler, welcome to CKUT. In your role as an observer of the United Nations, can you give us a sense of how the United Nations has responded to the events of September 11th specifically? Uh, there have been different responses coming from the different corners of the United Nations. Uh, there, there were uh, very strong statements right after September 11 from the uh, Secretary General, from the Commissioner, High Commissioner on Human Rights, uh, there were also a number of resolutions coming out of the Security Council, uh, in particular Resolution uh, 1373, which was passed about two weeks after September 11th, which uh, took a very unusual step of uh, requiring uh, member states to impose particular legal measures to prevent ter terrorism, and these measures were compulsory under the terms of this resolution. And when you say compulsory, what are the powers um, for the Security Council in terms of uh, implementation of the resolution by member countries and um, in terms of imposing the powers of the resolution? Um, when Security Council says that particular resolution is adopted under uh, Chapter uh, 7 of the uh, Charter, it means, in theory at least, that the Council could take coercive measures to enforce the resolution. And uh, while these resolutions are usually uh, adopted with respect to, for instance, international conflicts, uh, so uh, what we are talking about are sanctions or sometimes all the way to up to the use of force. Um, this is why this resolution is fairly unusual because it uh, invokes 
Chapter 7 powers uh, to something that's purely legal. Is this something that's quite, quite new in terms of uh, international uh, cooperation and, uh, and, and agreements or uh, the actions of the United States to, of the United Nations? Is, it, is this a, a unique time in terms of this kind of coercive legal uh, maneuver? I believe it is, because what this resolution does is uh, it takes bits and pieces from different legal uh, documents, from different uh, conventions, uh, and puts them in one package and in one stroke makes them compulsory. Uh, I don't think that has been done before. I think it, it was a very new response to a very new situation. This... Uh implementation that is called for in national jurisdictions. Uh, what is the tendency and the influence going to be then in terms of individual countries having to implement these obligations and these laws, and in terms of how uh, an international uh, jurisprudence is going to develop in terms of dealing with terrorism? Well, no, without negating the absolute need for taking uh, firm steps uh, to combat terrorism, one can be concerned that uh, governments may take some of these measures, uh, uh, calling them anti-terrorism uh, struggle, then they may apply them to domestic dissent. And this is why the human rights community has been watching uh, the Resolution 1373 and its implementation with great interest, but also with a degree of, uh, of concern. And repeatedly, uh, such concerns have been, uh, in fact, uh, raised by different actors uh, in the context of uh, Resolution 1373 and the body it created, which is called Counterterrorism Committee, which is a committee established by the Security Council, composed by all of the Security Council members and charged with overseeing the implementation of that resolution. Um, both NGOs and uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights have raised concerns that governments could use uh, the resolution to do certain things at home, uh, call them uh, anti-terror campaign, have full blessing of the uh, international community, and in the process, really violate or curtail uh, the rights of their citizens. Uh, Mary Robinson has addressed the Security Council uh, Counterterrorism Committee a few times. Uh, she has also offered, either directly or through her representative, she has also uh, offered to provide guidance to governments uh, to uh, allow them to work out their laws, their legislation in such a way as to not violate the existing human rights treaties. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the offer of their guidance was not accepted. The committee has not adopted these, guidance, uh, these guidelines as its own document. How effective are these resolutions? Well, the uh, treaties and resolutions are... are slightly two different things. In terms of the resolutions, 1373 is, is really unique, not only in terms of uh, its subject matter and its approach, but also because it created the committee which has uh, the duty to oversee the implementation, and governments have been uh, required to report periodically on the measures taken 
and in fact they have been reporting quite uh, in a, with a quite impressive uh, uh, obedience, so to speak. Just just to give you an example, uh, governments that sign treaties are supposed to uh, report on their own implementation of those treaties. And usually they have a pretty bad track record in meeting the deadlines. Um, in res With respect to the Security Council resolution and reporting obligations under that resolution, the uh, track record in meeting the deadlines was exceptionally good, unprecedented. Governments uh, made very significant efforts to really be uh, uh, completely okay vis-a-vis -vis the requirements of that committee. Do you think you understand why this unique or kind of exceptional compliance on this particular subject? I think uh, there are several factors going into it, but uh, obviously the urgency and the unusual nature of the situation is one, uh, one reason. It wasn't business as usual for anybody. We, it, it was a very, very dramatic, unusual situation that was created by September 11th attacks. Um, but also because the, uh, the committee uh, created its own apparatus, which uh, has been proactive, and uh, there has been a lot of communication from coming from the committee to government, so they weren't uh, probably allowed to forget about it. <laughs> The United Nations are all, um, has many different wings and, and functions and roles. Right. It already has the United Nations Office for Drug Control and Crime Prevention, which had already been working on, uh, on terrorism. Um, what, what's the background of the United Nations? There's already 12 um, uh, anti-terrorism conventions or protocols. I am wondering if you could give us a little resume of what the United Nations had already contributed to dealing with terrorism before September 11th. Well, you're, you're right. Uh, you mentioned the 12 conventions. And in fact, uh, right after September 11th, uh, there was a, a very concerted effort to... Uh, to uh, finalize the elaboration of a comprehensive uh, convention uh, on international terrorism. And uh, the, uh, the Secretary General hoped that it would be done in the previous session of the General Assembly, which didn't uh, happen, and then uh, that it would happen uh, during a working uh, session in, in winter of 2002. It didn't happen. Um, from the human rights perspective, Human Rights Watch and several other groups had very serious concerns about that draft convention, uh, and one of our main worries uh, has been that the comprehensive convention, as currently drafted, might weaken accepted principles and practices of international humanitarian and human rights law. This convention was suddenly being drafted in a lot of hurry and Harry is really a very bad uh, addition to any legal process, and especially a process establishing something as, as comprehensive and potentially important as this convention. What would the, the drafting and the ratification in the end of a, of a comprehensive definition uh, provide for internationally? Um, it would provide a whole series of uh, measures that governments would need to take, but only after ratifying 
the convention, which is a very long process in and of itself. And when you have a convention, uh, it's when it's open for ratification, it first needs a set number of ratifications in order to uh, come into life. So, in fact, even under the best of circumstances from the point of view of the timing, it would be years before this convention would have any real impact. And therefore, I go back to the Security Council resolution, which was, uh, you know, it, it just cut straight to the chase and uh, bypassed this process of, uh, of legal steps and made the uh, elements of, of different uh, anti-terrorism measures compulsory for governments. And I want to go back to the concerns that uh, human rights organizations had and the High Commissioner and also the Secretary General himself, who has made several very important uh, speeches on the issue of uh, human rights and counterterrorism, urging uh, states to not allow a situation in which uh, human rights would be a casualty, yet another casualty of terrorism. And the uh, if if uh, human rights became a casualty of counterterrorism, it would be handing the terrorists another victory and a vic- victory that would go beyond their wildest dreams. From a human rights and and uh, international global perspective, what are some of the background issues that have to also be addressed um, to have uh, a, a, an effective dealing with terrorism in the long run? What are some of the uh, developmental issues or things like that that have to be taken into place? And and finally, does the Security Council resolutions and these very uh, real police-like uh, interventions, do they address the deeper roots that would help the world deal with terrorism from the perspective of the human beings who suffer the violence? No, the Security Council resolution is uh, very much focused on the measures uh, themselves and doesn't go into uh, any other areas. And uh, obviously the United Nations dealing with a very broad spectrum of uh, of issues is addressing issues that potentially can uh, can help uh, preventing terrorism from taking place, or at least limiting the breeding ground for uh, for terrorist tendencies from from pro- proliferation. And in terms of the movement of peoples, uh, the process of of uh, citizenship, of immigration, just looking at the Canadian example, we're seeing a really fundamental change in the basic values that animate uh, government policy, from the way we identify people to the cards that they have, the documents that they have to, to carry, to uh, the obligations that we now recognize towards refugees. Um, we've all... After September 11th in Canada, we've changed a lot of these things, some of them in in line with Resolution 1373. From your perspective, um, is there there a a real risk to the the last 50 years or plus since 1948, a real calling into question to those values that were elaborated, for example, in the Declaration of Human Rights? And has it been a very quick turnaround? Was September 11th uh, really fundamental to uh, the values of of human rights and and human life uh, being put to the side in terms of uh, in in because of the needs of national security and international cooperation? 
Um, I think September 11 undoubtedly had an impact on um, especially issues that you mentioned related to immigration and to to people perceived as foreign or as different. Uh, A lot has changed in public attitudes and also in several countries. A lot has changed uh, legally and it is much more difficult to be a foreigner and to be different in any society. Uh, no question about that. There is also a problem of perhaps uh, reshuffling of priorities, and you can notice that governments are now, for instance, Western governments, uh, which have been outspoken on at least some or most human rights issues, are now less likely to criticize certain governments uh, if those governments are or are perceived to be uh, important allies in counterterrorism. In other words, that counterterrorism uh, trumps human rights in some situations, and that is obviously a very serious problem and, and, and something that human rights activists need to grapple with. You've been listening to Joanna Weschler, Human Rights Watch's United Nations Observer in New York City talking about Resolution 1373 and the UN's role post-September 11th. For more information about Human Rights Watch, visit their website at www.hrw.org. This has been part six, The Security State, from the documentary series Terrorism, Law, and Democracy. I was Khalid M. Safar. Join us next time for part seven. This has been a long-term memory radio production on CKUT 90.3 FM.